Welcome to this podcast from Smyrna Baptist Church in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Smyrna Baptist exists to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ, and our prayer is that this podcast would be used to the same end. We hope that you find this content to be meaningful and helpful as you journey on with Christ in the coming days. Point to Ponder, Ezekiel 36, 27. John's epistle contains many challenging truths, but it also holds numerous encouraging promises. Yesterday's text records one of those encouraging promises when John tells his readers that their God, who is within them, is greater than the one who is in this world. We understand the contrast to be between God and Satan, and we also recognize that this guarantee is central to the confession and hope of the Christian faith. Indeed, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, and we further confess that those who are in Christ enjoy all the benefits of His triumphant Lordship. This week, I'd like to explore how we benefit from Christ's triumph over Satan, then pivot to a few of the ways that Jesus is greater than His enemies. As we begin our journey through this verse, we must recognize that John has a specific audience in mind. Notice here that he assumes something about the you that he is addressing. John says, quote, Greater is he that is in you. Who is the you? The answer is believers. John is talking specifically to those who have embraced Christ as Savior and therefore experience his saving and preserving presence in their lives. From childhood, I was taught that God lived within believers. This is a marvelous truth, but I dare say it may be more commonplace to many of us than it should be. One of the major problems with the human condition is that we can become accustomed to the truly miraculous. Folks, think about what the Bible is saying here. The God of the universe lives, truly dwells within us. What a majestic truth. What a marvelous reality. What an incredibly assuring assertion. This arrangement has not always been. In fact, the Old Testament believers were recipients of some truly hard-to-believe prophecies about the coming of the Lord to dwell within His people. Ezekiel prophesies of a day to come when the Spirit of God would come to dwell within the people of God for a specific purpose, to observe the law of God. When Ezekiel spoke these words, the law of God already existed, but the effectiveness of the law waned. The people of God simply were unable to take that which God clearly articulated and apply it in their lives. Their desires to be holy came and went, but their ability to walk in a holy manner was totally insufficient, and the reason is that their hearts were still in need of a transformation. What they needed was not more instruction. What they needed was the spiritual ability and aptitude to follow God's revelation. Notice here that Ezekiel says that God's presence in our lives will, quote, cause us to walk in His ways. It is God's power and indwelling presence that catalyzes us to holiness. This means that our holiness is rooted in God's provision. There is one other point that needs to be made here. Not only does our holiness flow from God's presence, but also the way that we overcome the world is grounded in His dwelling within us. The logic flows quite nicely. The way of the world leads to death. The way of God leads to life. Those who follow the path to death are overwhelmed. Those who walk in holiness overcome. But the way that we walk in holiness is not in our own strength. It is through the indwelling power of the Spirit who comes to us only in salvation. The point then is that believers will triumph, and unbelievers will fail, precisely because the very thing that we need for victory is the God that the lost reject. This is how God can say unequivocally that we have overcome, not because you and I are stronger, but because our God surely is. Point to ponder 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. 
The Bible utilizes and expands the theme in Ezekiel of God's indwelling presence in a very convincing, theologically significant way. Today's text tells us that the consequence or result of God's presence in our lives is that our very bodies become the, quote, temple of God. The idea of the temple is a biblically robust concept. The Old Testament teaching on the temple demonstrated the significance of the structure as the place where God's glory most palpably and obviously dwelt and the central location of worship. Both of these truths should lead us to a further understanding of the importance of a holy lifestyle before God. First, we should recognize the significance of the temple as God's dwelling. The Bible teaches us that the temple included many rooms and courts, but the most significant was the Holy of Holies. This was a truly sacred place deep within the recesses of the temple where only certain biblically qualified men could go for a short period of time. Their presence in the Holy of Holies was explicitly for the purpose of offering sacrifice, and their coming into that place was not to be taken lightly, as the very glory of God was weighty in that room. This leads to our second point, which is grounded in the significance of the temple, and the weight of the Holy of Holies was so profound that there had to be great preparation to even walk into the room. Going to the temple was not to be taken lightly. Even approaching the outer gates of the temple flippantly was considered horrific, precisely because it totally debunked the very reason for a person's presence, which was worship. Heartfelt, intentional, meaningful worship. When we combine these two things, the presence of the Lord and the place of worship, we have a bit of a fuller understanding of the weight of Paul's statement here. When Paul says we are the temple of God, he means in part that we are walking temples of God's presence and beacons of his praise. We have been saved to manifest his righteous rule in our own lives, and we have been saved to bring him glory. This means that John's statement that God is, quote, in us is a profoundly important little phrase. The implications of this phrase are massive for the way we live our lives, and the way we live our lives demonstrates the power that we have been given to overcome the evil one. Folks, I suppose my point is relatively simple. If we are not walking exemplars of God's presence in our lifestyle and our worship, then we must stop to at least consider whether we are truly temples of God at all. We should not assume that we are simply assured of victory because we know a few truths. If the Lord has saved you, He lives within you. And if he lives within you, then your life will reflect this truth. And if your life reflects his presence, then you have every reason to believe that he will see to it that we triumph over the enemies of God. Point to Ponder, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 18. I'm going to ask a question in today's devotion that you should consider at some point in your walk with God. As we consider the fact that God has seen fit to indwell you, to make you his temple, and to go with you wherever you may wander, the obvious question is how. How is it possible that God could make us, sinful, depraved, and carnal men, his temple? How could he indwell such sinful bodies? How can he live with us in our fallen condition? This is a question that doesn't get near enough airplay in our entitled religious world, in my estimation. We seem to act as if grace is debt, and debt is to be forgiven by grace. Many folks wonder why God doesn't save everyone, when the question is why God would choose to save anyone. Many folks question God's motives and why He doesn't answer all our prayers, when we should be wondering why He is concerned with any of our prayers. This right understanding of our relationship with God requires an orientation of our own perspective that unveils our sinful condition and the righteousness of God. When we see God's righteousness, we are astounded that He would want any part of us. This is the fundamental beauty and majesty of the gospel. That God would work to save us and to have a relationship with us is truly breathtaking. 
The fact that he does have a relationship with his children is marvelous. The reality that he indwells us is astounding. But the way that he went about this arrangement is crucial to comprehend. You see, we believe that our sin alienates us from a holy God. The wages of sin is death, and death is separation from the giver of life. To be dead is to be removed from the lifeline. The chasm that formed between God and man is not able to be crossed by sinful men. We need someone to bridge the gap. Someone to make peace between our rebellious souls and the God we have offended. Someone to atone for our sin and make it possible for God to enforce His law and offer us grace. This act of bridging the gap is biblically referred to as reconciliation, and it takes place in Christ. How does God dwell within us? He dwells within us as His holy temple as a result of Christ's reconciling work. Jesus reconciles us to the Father, thereby atoning for our past transgressions, making right our wrongs in His suffering, and making it possible for us to be both deemed holy in God's sight and fit to be indwelt by the Spirit. It is Jesus who cleans us up. It is Christ who takes us upon Himself and takes His sin, our sin, upon Him. And it is our Savior who makes a way for the Spirit to be within us. These things are not throwaway truths. They are the very life-giving realities of our faith. Without Jesus, we are not reconciled, and without reconciliation, we are not united to the giver of life, and deemed righteous, and without imputed righteousness, we are not fit to be temples of the living God. So once again, we come back to our great Savior. He is the reason why any of this is possible. It is in Him that we overcome the evil one. He is the reason for our hope, and the only cause of our triumph. Point to ponder Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. I hope that it has become abundantly clear to all of us that we are overcomers because of our relationship to Christ. Jesus is the reason for our hope of victory, and this is articulated for us by John in this statement, quote, Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. The parties here are clear. One in us is Christ, and one in the world is Satan. Yet this statement begs some questions. The biggest question is how do we know? How do we know that Jesus is greater than Satan? There are numerous answers, but I will endeavor to give you a few as we close our study this week. As we begin this portion of our study, we should consider the biblical teaching that Jesus is greater because he did not succumb to any sinful temptation. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted, quote, in every way. This does not mean that he was tempted to every particular sin. It means that he was tempted to sin in the myriad of ways that we fall. Theologians have pointed out that this has massive ramifications for the triumph of Jesus. First, we should know that Jesus' victory over temptation means that he endured temptation to the uttermost. This is an interesting line of thinking that is not explored enough, in my opinion. Nevertheless, it is true that Jesus' temptation did not cease like many of ours do. You see, we are tempted to sin, and then we sin, and when we sin, the temptation to sin subsides, at least for a moment. All of us know what it's like to fight some urge, some sinful temptation, only to give in. The grief and the shame that follows is heavy, but the temptation itself subsides, at least for a moment. To truly endure temptation to the end means that you bear its weight until you prevail in totality. No one has ever succeeded in this arena but Christ. This means that he has experienced the full gravity of temptation, and still won. Second, it means that Jesus can empathize with us. We all know what it's like to bear our burdens to someone who responds with some trite, unrealistic response or with a minimizing tone. It is so challenging and discouraging to bear a burden and realize that the person you are speaking to simply doesn't understand. The good news for us today is that our God is not in that category. 
He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows the struggles of this world, and he offers you grace anyway. When you pray, you are not seeking the grace of a removed, indignant dictator. You are pursuing the mercy of one who knows what it's like to endure difficulty in this world. His experience with temptation and his victory over it means his word should guide us as our authority, and his mercy extended to us should be meaningful as well. In this way, Jesus has shown that he is greater than he who is in the world, but his prevailing over sin is escalated when we consider his victory over temptation in the presence of Satan himself. That is the point of our devotion tomorrow. Point to Ponder, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. I suppose that I assumed the connection between sin and Satan yesterday. When the Bible says that Jesus is greater than the one in the world, it is technically speaking about one being. Nevertheless, the person of Satan and the manifestation of sin have been inextricably bound since the beginning of time. After all, temptation to sin entered the world through the serpent in Eden, and Satan's victory over man in that moment made necessary the coming seed of the woman who would crush the head of Satan at a future moment in time. We believe that Jesus was victorious. He was the head-crushing Savior. And we also see in our passage today that Jesus gave evidence of his ability to prevail over the evil one prior to his finished work on the cross. To truly understand the significance of the temptation of Christ, you must see the parallels between Jesus and Adam. Whereas Adam encountered Satan in the paradise of the garden, Jesus interacted with Satan in the wilderness. Whereas Adam had everything he could possibly need at his disposal at the time of the temptation, Jesus' interaction with Satan came at a time when he was hungry. Whereas Adam allowed Satan to twist Scripture, Jesus responded to each of Satan's temptations with Scripture. In these ways, Jesus demonstrates his superiority over the first Adam and demonstrates his power over the evil one. As we consider Jesus' temptation, we must think about the foreshadowing that is taking place. Jesus takes some of Satan's best shots and keeps on trucking in his righteous obedience. Satan does all that he can to knock Christ off course, and yet Jesus prevails. This is surely ample reason to believe John's statement, Surely Christ is greater than Satan. As we close today, I cannot allow this moment to pass without pointing out a somewhat related point about our passage. As we consider the calling to follow Christ, we must realize that we are to follow Christ in combating temptation. Jesus serves as our exemplar in this passage as he models for us how we are to go about combating the advances of the wily serpent. Notice that Christ responds to Satan's temptation with scripture. Jesus does not combat the advances of his evil adversary with pithy phrases or trite religious sayings. Instead, he reminds the devil of the enduring truth of God's word, which would prohibit Christ from acquiescing to the temptations of Satan. Christ knew the scriptures well. He understood the way that Satan tried to twist what was said, and he had firm conviction that the word of God was the authority. How about us? Do we know the Bible well enough to articulate a proper response in our moment of temptation? Can we recognize it when Satan twists scripture? After all, Satan does cite several verses in this text. They're just out of context. Are we well versed in God's expectations of us and how he expects us to live so that we can spot the moments when we are being enticed to stray from the straight and narrow path of righteousness? The story of Christ should inspire us to grow in wisdom and stature, just as our Lord did, according to Luke chapter 2 and verse 52. Point to ponder Romans 6, 23. Today's verse is a familiar one, but perhaps not in the way that I intend to utilize it. We have been talking about the biblical reasons we have to believe that the God who indwells us is greater than the God who is in the world. 
The answer is multifaceted, but it most certainly includes the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, prevailed over death, which is the greatest obstacle and weapon the enemy possesses. Romans 6 tells us that death is the product of our sin, and we know that sin came into the world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve at the behest of Satan. We could earnestly say that death is the great enemy of mankind, but it is a kind of adversary that we have no hope of defeating in our own strength. If sin results in death, and if all of us are sinners, then the only thing we have left to do is to wait for the next proverbial shoe to drop. Life is just a waiting game, whereby we see the inevitable approach of our just condemnation, with no hope of stopping the slide into the eternal abyss that most assuredly will follow. The consequence of this truth must be that we realize that our hope does not, indeed our hope cannot, flow through belief in our ability. Instead, hope comes through the gift of grace and eternal life that was won for us through the substitutionary death and victorious resurrection of our Lord. Simply stated, Jesus rose again. And this proves that not even death can prevail over God. If Jesus is able to prevail against death, surely he can win any battle that he enters into. And this means that we have every reason to trust him when we consider the conflict that is waged between the God in us and the God of this world. The language that Paul uses in this verse is instructive. The wages of sin is death. A wage is something we earn. It's what we deserve. When you take a job for $10 an hour and you work 10 hours, you expect $100 as your earned wage, minus the majority in taxation, of course, for your labor. Consequently, you don't view the check as evidence of your employer's kindness. You see the compensation as that which justly belongs to you. What belongs to us as sinners is death. It's our wage. Conversely, a gift is something we freely receive. While I will admit that the world sometimes corrupts this truth, a gift in the truest sense of the word is an unmerited offer of goodwill. You don't earn a gift. A true gift is simply an expression of another party's consideration of you. There have been many times when I received gifts that I did not deserve, and the most obvious and impactful example of this is the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. There is one other aspect of this concept that matters to us, however, and that is the fact that gifts can only be truly given by someone who owns the gift previously. We must purchase the gift at a store to give it to our children. We must rightly own an item before we can decide who we want to give the item to. In this sense, we see the exalted nature of Christ. How can God, in Christ, give us a gift of eternal life? The answer is that He can only give it to us because He possesses it. Our God is the rightful owner of all good things, and this gives us confidence that He has the resources to prevail in every circumstance and in the midst of every form of opposition. Point to ponder, Psalm 110, verse 1. We have arrived at our final devotion for the week, and I hope that this text will be most encouraging to us as we prepare our hearts to worship on yet another Lord's Day. Today's passage is fascinating for many reasons, but I want to focus on two, the triune nature of our God and the exalted position of our Savior. First, the verbiage in this passage is incredibly insightful. Here David writes about two distinct lords. You see it quite clearly in the text as the psalm says, quote, The Lord says to my Lord. Who are these two lords? Some have been confused here because the Bible is quite clear that there is only one God. How can there be one God and two lords? The answer is that there is one God who exists eternally in three distinct co-equal persons. Now, this is quite interesting language, but it is the biblical teaching nonetheless. In this case, we see two of those persons in Psalm 110. The first person is God the Father, and the second is God the Son. 
We know this because the first Lord tells the second Lord to, quote, sit here, which is clear language that communicates Christ's exalted position at the right hand of the Father. The fact that each of these beings are called Lord demonstrates that both are bestowed the rightful title of deity, and this means that they both recognize the divine nature of the other. The more applicable truth for our purposes lies in the acknowledgement of why the Lord Jesus is instructed to sit at the right hand of the Father. The Bible quite obviously says that Jesus is to sit as God makes his enemies his footstool. The point is that Jesus has been given the authority over all things. He has demonstrated his victorious might over Satan's temptations, death, and the grave, and now all things are being brought into subjection to him. Every enemy and every contrary entity that currently attempts to subvert Christ's rightful authority is in the process of being put in subjection to his lordship and this includes the one that currently exercises his evil influence in the world. When Christ ascended to heaven, he did so in order to consummate his right reign over all things. The fact that he got up and then ascended even further up into the heavenlies is not a neat reality or a trivial occurrence. It was purposeful. Jesus reigns, and he will always reign, and his reign is even now being fleshed out in the world. This does not deny the presence of evil, nor does it communicate the idea that every evil in the world is already obliterated. But it does state that God is in the process of seeing to it that all things will work out in accordance with his divine design. This means that Satan's defeat is sure, and it is in process. It also means that we, the church, are involved in the cosmic mission to advance the kingdom of God, prevailing against the gates, a defensive mechanism by the way, of hell to take more ground for the glory of God. May we do so in faith, trusting that the God we represent and the God who dwells within us has proven his victory over our enemies.